0: Chris, am I, on? am I on? Where did Chris go? Did I lose you? How, how long did that take you? Not this. How long did the connection card poem take you? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Ten minutes? Okay. Thank you, brother. That was really neat. Oh, okay. I went off. I went on. I'm good. Let me see. I just need to catch you all in here for a second. It takes a little while. (laughs) Okay. Hey, turn to the person next to you and say, I'm glad you're here. (laughs) But mean it. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. All right, we are going to be in Mark 14. Mark 14 this morning, looking at verses 53 through 65 as we move our way through the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have Bibles, just take one of those blue church Bibles, turn to page 851, that will bring you to our text. Mark 14, 53-65. I titled this message, No Justice for Jesus. Let me define justice quickly. <clears throat> Justice is the quality of being just, impartial, or fair. Justice is the quality of being just, impartial, or fair. Justice could be characterized by that which conforms to a standard of correctness, is morally right or good, righteous, reasonable, or lawful. Justice. Somebody put this quote up about justice. I liked it, so let me read it to you. The author said, I have come to believe that the one thing people cannot bear is a sense of injustice. Poverty, cold, even hunger are more bearable than injustice. How many of you would probably maybe agree with that? Maybe think there's something to that. I wanted to illustrate maybe what injustice looks like so you guys could get a real feeling for it. So I found this picture. I think it illustrates it well. See, on the left side, I'm actually looking to start a movement here and now against what I think is a great act of injustice in our world. And I'll tell you, beloved, I don't know if you know this, but when the economy started tanking, manufacturers realized that if they were going to raise their prices, which they were doing typically year after year after year, and theoretically we were getting cost of living increases so we could you know, just all be ate up by, by the fact that we had to buy stuff that was more expensive, they realized that they weren't going to be able to raise their prices without a revolt. So what they started doing was they kept the bags the same size, but they reduced the content. I don't know if you know that, but several of them have. And so you'll look and it's no longer ten ounces, it's eight ounces. Injustice beloved. <laughs> anyway, you can drop that silly pick. On a serious note. <clears throat> you probably all are all familiar. To one, to one degree or another with injustice, I would imagine. If you are African American, you are certainly familiar with injustice. Right? If you're a minority, you are certainly familiar with injustice. A woman, you know injustice. I don't think there's anybody in this room that has not been touched by in a very negative way injustice so i think you will be able to relate greatly with our lord jesus christ for there was no justice for him in an act of great betrayal let me just give you a context judas one of the 12 disciples of jesus led a hostile crowd of religious authorities to where jesus had been praying in the garden of gethsemane late thursday night early Friday morning while it was still dark. They arrested Jesus, took him away. Jesus did not fight or try to escape, but he willingly went with them. However, one thing that's glaringly absent from that story or from this arrest was any charge Of a crime. Let's look at the text together. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Beloved, if you you have an outline, you can follow along inside of that outline. This morning what we're going to do is consider just two aspects, just two aspects of of Jesus' first trial. We'll talk about that in a second. Jesus' first trial. There will be two trials for Jesus. So that we might be moved, hopefully, to loathe our sin. And, beloved, loathe means to hate be disgusted with. That we might be moved to loathe our sin and love our Lord even more. That's my hope this morning. The first point is the illegality of the trial. The illegality of the trial. It's an illegal trial. And second, the nature of the defendant. So Let's examine that this morning. Jesus' first trial, beloved, was conducted by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, his second trial right before he's crucified was conducted by the Roman authorities, namely Pilate, which we'll get to next week. The Sanhedrin or the council, the council is which, and that is the word that is used in our English Bibles... And you see that in Matthew 26.59, which is Matthew's account of the same exact story of Jesus being arrested and taken away and brought before this council or Sanhedrin, literally, in the original language. This group, this Sanhedrin, this council was made up of priests, elders, and scribes, as Mark describes them here in this section. Elders were tribal and family heads of the people. Scribes were legal experts. Priests, it's self-explanatory. Religious leaders. And they, this whole group was headed up or presided over by a high priest, the high priest of Israel. So you have chief priest, priest, high priest, elders, scribe. There were 71 members in all in this group. Members from both religious parties. You know how we have Democrats, Republicans? Well, they had two parties within Judaism, two primary parties, Sadducees and Pharisees. Both of these groups were represented in the Sanhedrin. Sadducees predominantly represented a bigger portion of the group. They were both included in this council. The high priest at this time in history, his name was Caiaphas. Caiaphas. We see that in Matthew twenty six fifty seven. Mark just refers to him as the high priest, but Matthew identifies him, Caiaphas. And he was in that position as high priest from A.D. 18 to 36. Someone mentioned to, this to me months ago. A.D. It simply is a short for Anno Domini, which is medieval Latin for the year of our Lord. The year of our Lord. It does not mean after death. It means in the year of our Lord. So they started dating things 10 A.D., 20 A.D. Right now we live in the year 2012 A.D. Since Christ came, we have been in the year of our Lord. Of course, they've removed that from the school systems now, and now they've replaced it with CE, which means current era. And before Christ came, they call that BCE, which is before the current era. But for the Christian... It is B.C., before Christ. That is how time has been divided. And A.D., Anodomini, in the year of our Lord, since Christ has come. Anyway, just threw that in there. Remember his name. Okay, remember Caiaphas' name. We're going to talk about him again. Also note that Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. He's The son-in-law of Annas. Annas ruled as the high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. And just like our presidents, he maintained the title of high priest. So sometimes when you're reading in the Gospels, it'll say that Annas the high priest, and you might get confused and go, wait a minute, I thought Caiaphas was the high priest. He was. But Annas maintains his title of high priest, even after he's been removed from that office. He's mentioned in John's Gospel. Caiaphas in John 18.13 as the first person that Jesus was led to and questioned by just prior to this council or this trial in front of this council or Sanhedrin. Okay, Mark's gospel doesn't record that, but John's gospel does. So there's another trip after Jesus is arrested. That we read about in John's Gospel. Right before he's taken before the council. He's brought before the old high priest. The father-in-law of the current high priest. And we're going to look at that later. So just remember all that. The Sanhedrin in a sense. Beloved served in the same role. As our Supreme Court does. Okay now they're not. They're not secular though. Like our Supreme Court is. Meaning that. Secular means just not religious in nature. Not religious in nature. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jewish people, but they were very much religious in nature. In fact, they were concerned with religion and they oversaw Judaism and religious matters regarding the Jewish people. Now, it's important to note, we we kind of isolate religion as just a piece of our life. But you have to understand, for Judaism... and. It, And it should be for Christians too, but for Judaism, religion was their life. It infiltrated every part of their life and conduct. So for the Sanhedrin to oversee religious matters meant they oversaw every aspect of the individual's life. The Roman government that ruled over the Jews at this time in history, remember they were the conquering power, the empire, they allowed the Sanhedrin, gave them permission, beloved, and they would have needed their permission, otherwise they couldn't have functioned. They allowed them to do what they did and and have great level of authority over the Jewish people. Although, they prevented the council from actually executing people. They were not allowed to do that. And we see that in John 18.31. Rome ultimately wanted the final word on who lives and who dies. They were the empire. Bottom line... I'm not trying to get you to become experts on the Sanhedrin this morning. I just want you to know and understand this. The Sanhedrin or the council that is now holding this trial for Jesus, these were the religious elite, okay? The religious elite, beloved, among the Jewish people, and they assumed the enormous responsibility of enforcing God's righteous laws and seeing to it that justice (laughs) was carried out among the people. That was what they were supposed to do, to see that justice was carried out. In fact, like any good justice system, they had many strict rules and procedures in place to theoretically assure that justice would happen. But in Jesus' case, most of them were intentionally violated. What happened with Jesus was not even remotely righteous or just. I'm going to focus in on just one of the the reasons, I think one of the main reasons that we'll see this morning that justify my statement that it was not even remotely righteous or just. And that is, Jesus was brought to trial without any charge of a crime. Look back at the text, Mark 14, 55. Now the chief priest and the whole council, the Sanhedrin, were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. What? They had arrested Jesus, you've got to see this, they had arrested Jesus and drug him before the high court of the land in order to be condemned to death, pretty extreme, and they didn't have a valid charge to bring against him. This was an illegal trial right from the beginning. Remember I mentioned Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas? Remember that? We talked about that? Well, in John's Gospel, and you can read this on your own, in John 18, verses 19 through 24, that's where we're informed that just prior to standing before this council, Jesus is taken to Annas's place, his home, first. Probably this bought time for the council to gather together to hold this trial. Remember, this is... 1 a.m. in the morning, somewhere around there, that this is all taking place. People are usually asleep at this time. Annas' questioning of Jesus was clearly an attempt to get something out of him that he could hopefully try to use to bring a charge against Jesus. This is a racket. Annas, father-in-law of Caiaphas, both high priests, One high priest at this time, one high priest before. They are in this together. This is a conspiracy, beloved. So they bring him before Annas. Hopefully he's more skilled, older, more wise. He'll be able to question Jesus and and get him to say something that he might be able to use against him. But he was unsuccessful. So we read in John 18.24 that Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest he couldn't get anything out of him he sent him away to be tried but at this point there is still no charge to justify the arrest and trial and certainly nothing that would be worthy of killing him this is just a witch hunt that's all this is so look back at the text mark 14:56 says for many bore false witness against him But their testimony did not agree. So here we have at the prodding and urging of the Sanhedrin or the council because they were seeking testimony against Jesus, witnesses now come forward. We don't know if they had these witnesses lined up or they had a list of people that they planned on calling. We don't know. All we know is they sought out witnesses and now they've come forward. However, the witnesses were not in agreement regarding their fictional statements about Jesus' supposed wrongdoing. No agreement here. See, in Jewish trials, it's a quote from a commentary, in Jewish trials, the witnesses served as the prosecution giving their testimonies separately. The witnesses would come before them in the trial, they would lay out their charge against the defendant, and that served as the prosecution. Agreement among the witnesses was necessary because according to the Mosaic law that the Sanhedrin had Swore to uphold. <laughs> Convicting a person of a crime required agreement in the testimony of at least two witnesses, and you can see that. You can write this down. And check it out for yourself later. Numbers chapter thirty-five thirty, Deuteronomy chapter seventeen verse six, and especially chapter nineteen verse fifteen. This was God's way of protecting His people from false accusations. You can't just have some yahoo come up and start making accusations. There would have to be at least two witnesses who both agreed, who both saw it happen, so that they had some way to try to confirm whether this was a true story or not. But these witnesses that the Sanhedrin got to come before the council and give up their false testimony about Jesus, their lies don't match up. That's the bottom line. That's what's going on. They don't match up. Just like in trials today, beloved, we've seen this. When people are lying, there's discrepancies in their stories. Why? Because it's not the truth. It's not the truth. So they don't get the story right. And that was the case here. The nearest that they could get to as a significant charge that they could bring against Jesus was something about the destruction of sacred property. He said, he said he is going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. Yes, yes, that's what he said he was going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. Look back at the text, Mark 14, 57. And some, the witnesses, false witnesses, stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say. That was part of testimony, by the way. They could, not, they could not be true witnesses if they heard somebody else say he said that. They had to be a witness to him saying that. So we, we heard him actually say this. I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, maybe you don't know, and maybe you do, but either way, Jesus did say something like that. About three years earlier. Right at the beginning of his ministry. Three years, beloved. They had to go back three years. And that's the best they could do. It's recorded for us in John 2.19. We're not going to turn there. You can write it down. Where Jesus says something similar to that. But we know when we look at John. That Jesus was not referring to the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem when he made this statement about it being destroyed, but he was actually referring to his body, the temple of his body. That's what we learn in John. And here's what he actually said, as recorded in John 2. Destroy this temple, and he was near the temple, in the temple when he said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Again, he's not referring to the actual temple, he's referring to his body. And he's referring, beloved, to his death and resurrection. He would be killed. He would rise again in three days. John 2, 21 through 22. And by the way, that statement was not randomly made. Jesus wasn't just walking around going, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up again. That's not what happened. He was in the temple. He was doing cleansing of the temple. He was kicking people out. This was the first cleansing recorded for us in John, kicking people out, telling them what to do, taking over in the temple. The Jews, the Jewish authorities, came to him and said, hey, yo, they didn't say it like that, but they said something like this, who, what gives you the right to think you can do this? We want you to show us a sign, give us a sign that demonstrates to us, that proves to us you have authority to be bossing people around the temple. And he said this, destroy this temple in three days, or to destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. That's your sign. It would be the resurrection of Jesus Christ that would be the the absolute proof that he was Lord. And he had the right to be doing what he did. By the way, this must have got around, this statement. It must have spread like gossip. Can you believe that guy? He's walking around telling people he'll destroy the temple in three days, build it up. That's crazy. Do you know how long it took to build that temple? And the reason I say that is because when he was on the cross, just flip over Mark 15. If you're in your Bibles, just look at Mark 15. He's on the cross, verse 29. And those who passed by derided him. They. They mocked him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So this is just a common phrase that had been passed around. That's why these witnesses knew it. They're like, Oh, yeah, we've heard him. He said something about destroying the temple. But they got that wrong. Now, if they could get this charge to stick, they could have been on to something as far as having Jesus killed. One writer says it is a serious charge as the center of Jewish worship as the temple was and the seat of the Sanhedrin's power because they were responsible for the priest who oversaw the temple. The temple symbolized the essence of hopes of Judaism. Pretty serious thing. Another writer says this, that he, Jesus, would replace the present temple with one of a different kind, if that's what he was saying and that's what they were implying, This implied an overthrow of the divinely instituted form of worship and therefore involved him in open disloyalty to the sacred institution. This could theoretically be a very serious charge. Beyond that, we're also told by another commentator, destruction of a worship place was a capital offense in the ancient world. Capital offense just means death, deserving of death. But in Mark 14.59, look back at your text, this is what we're told. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, beloved, I'm not sure why it didn't agree. It could have been that their stories weren't exactly right. It could have been when they were questioned about when he said it. They weren't sure they couldn't agree on that. We don't know. All we do know is, bottom line, in front of the whole Sanhedrin, here's what they're saying, but their testimonies do not agree, and therefore, based on the Mosaic law, their testimony cannot stand. They had no legal reason for arresting Jesus and bringing him before this council. Beloved, defendants sometimes claim about false charges, right? You'll hear people say, I didn't do it. I'm an innocent man. They got the wrong guy. But in this case, there were no charges. There's no charges. They wanted him dead, and they were trying to create a justification for his death. One writer says this, The verdict was in before the procedure began. They already decided, we're going to kill him. They just needed a crime to justify his execution. Pretty nice, huh? Religious elite. The ones charged with maintaining justice. Now, we could go on about the many ways in which this trial was illegal, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize them for you. According to historical Jewish documents... There were procedures, and that's how we know about them, because we don't find them in the Bible, all of them. There were procedures to be followed for the trials that were conducted by the Sanhedrin. Procedures, like I said, beloved, that were designed to make sure that justice was served. Here are some of them. Trials were to occur in the daytime. This one occurred in the middle of the night. Witnesses were to be warned against rumor and hearsay. Okay, well, they originally had no witnesses. That's problem one. And the ones that they did finally find to come forward felt comfortable, apparently, to just flat-out lie. Now, beloved, when I talk about warning, they were to give them the same warning that we find in Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 20, where I said before this talks about they needing to be more than one witness. And here's how the warning goes. If a false witness comes before the trial, makes accusations, and you discover, the judges discover he's a false witness, then whatever he was accusing the person of doing would be held against them. And they would suffer the consequences of it. So if I came against my brother Tony here and falsely accused him of murder and they found out I was lying, he would be let go, and the accusation would come against me, and I would have been killed. And this happened to make sure that people were very afraid of giving false testimony. These people weren't afraid. I don't think they were warned. Because the council wasn't looking for the truth about Jesus. They were looking to secure a conviction so that they could call for his death. Here's a few more. Trials were not to occur on the Sabbath or on other holy days. Religious festivals or celebrations. Beloved, the Passover. The Passover is taking place. They're holding trial on the Passover. The council met at an official place in the temple. little spot in the temple. That's where they held their trials. This one is being held in the courtyard of the high priest, his home. They're at his house. And back then they would have a courtyard, so in the center there would be an open place where they could have fires, where there was no ceiling or roof. It was just open to the sky, but the houses were built around this courtyard. So it's secure, it's sealed in, it's not in a public location, in the middle of this priest's home. This is where this trial is taking place. The high priest, Caiaphas, was there to be the judge, He was there to be on the jury of the 71 and he was supposed to be a guarantor of justice. Make sure that things were going correctly and according to law and rule. But in this trial, he takes on the role of a prosecutor in an attempt to convict an innocent man. We'll look at that in a moment. One writer says this, this whole thing is a sham without a crime, without any testimony to corroborate or confirm a crime. They want them dead, and they're trying to figure out how to do it. Now, here's a question for us. What in the world, what in the world would cause these religious men to do such a perverted thing, to break so many rules to make a mockery of justice, to violate God's word on multiple levels, to do something so morally reprehensible, to arrest and prosecute an innocent man. Well, what would do that, beloved? Sin. Sin. We're told in Mark 15.10 and we'll get there, I believe, next week that when they came to Pilate after this joke of a trial and they went to hand him over to Pilate Roman governor, charge of the Roman government there we're also told in Luke that when they handed him over one of the things they said was, this man tells us not to pay taxes to Caesar. Lie. Flat out lie. They tell him that because it looks like, hey, you know, this is why we're giving you this guy, he's such a bad guy, He doesn't. he's even telling the Jewish people, we shouldn't pay you the tax. They didn't want to pay the taxes either, but now they're lying about Jesus. So they hand him over, along with some other lies, and... And it says here in Mark 15.10, For he, that is Pilate, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Pilate perceived that they were jealous of Jesus. In other words, you guys aren't loyal to Rome. Please, you're loyal to yourselves. And you're jealous of Jesus. Beloved, think, think with me for just a second. Jealousy. Envy. One of those sins that we don't think much about. Not a big deal, huh? Jealousy and envy cause this type of corruption to happen. To accuse an innocent man and, and bring him to his death. Not any innocent man, beloved. We'll get to that in a second. But an innocent man to violate every protocol that they had to maintain justice. Envy. Sin, beloved, vile and wicked and dark and disgusting. There's another one. Remember I told you about Caiaphas, right? He's the high priest here. There was this conversation that took place in John 11, 47 through 50. text will pop up here in a second. This conversation took place after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay? So a pretty incredible miracle. Jesus had raised a man who was clearly dead. He raised him. He resuscitated him. He brought him back to life. And so now we have this recorded for us beginning in verse 7. So the chief priest... Of chapter 11, verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council. Here we go again. Got them all together. And they said, what are we to do? For this man, referring to Jesus, performs many signs. I think about this, beloved. He just raised someone from there. They're not questioning the signs. They're not saying the signs aren't true. How can they deny them? They're acknowledging the signs. Instead of saying, oh my goodness, we need to think about this man. We need to consider this man. This man is incredible. This man does great things. This man may be the Messiah. None of that. Here's what they say. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, beloved... Rome allowed the Jews to function and do their governing and all of that, but it was always under Roman control. But the last thing Rome wanted was a bunch of people getting fired up about a guy that they think is the Messiah and the King, and maybe causing a revolution, a rebellion against Rome. So they're concerned. If everyone gets crazy about this guy, excited about this guy, the Romans, they might come. Come. They might come and, and their military will come after us and they'll, they'll take away our place and our nation. They'll take away our freedoms. They'll take away our rights. But one of them, verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. All Caiaphas is saying here is, guys, we just got to take this guy out. There is no reason for everyone to go down with him. We'll just take him out. And so in verse 53, it says of chapter 11, so from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Now just think about that for a second. Jesus was a potential threat to their way of life. So they're going to kill him. This is self-centeredness extraordinaire. They are more concerned about losing. And they don't even have freedom, really. They live under the rule of Rome. But they're more concerned about losing what they have than following their Lord. He has clearly made it evident that He is the Messiah. But they are so concerned of what the Romans will do that they might lose their place, their privileges, the council. And remember, they were given a lot of privileges as that religious leadership, as the religious elite. They didn't want to see any of that taken away. Do you remember when we were back in Mark 8, 34 through 38, and and that's that section where Jesus says, listen, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. You must deny yourself and take up your cross. And I said then that denial of self is a turning away from the idolatry of self-centeredness in every attempt to orient one's life by the demands of self interest. Beloved, these people were self centered. They were all about themselves. And it was that that brought about the death of Jesus Christ, in part. But we don't think anything of it self centeredness, envy. Yeah. So you're a little self centered. Beloved, it's sin. And all I'm trying to expose to you here is is that it was that sin that brought about this greatest act of injustice that the world has ever known. You and I know injustice. You and I know it. We loathe it. We hate it. But it was sin, beloved. Human sin. And that's what human sin is capable of killing the Prince of Peace out of envy and self-centeredness. Alright, let's move on to the nature of the defendant, beloved. In this case, it is Jesus. He is blameless. He is innocent of any wrongdoing. Look at Mark 14, 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council, they're seeking testimony against Jesus to put Him to death. To put Him to death. But guess what? They found none. They found none because there was none to find. That's why... When Jesus was questioned by Annas about his, his disciples and His teaching, Jesus said this in John 18, verses 20-21, through 21, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask Me? Ask those who have heard Me what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus, beloved, had nothing to hide and nothing to fear for everything he did, everything he said was blameless. Look it, I'm not in a corner, he's saying. I've been speaking publicly. You want to know what I'm saying? Just ask all the people. Ask them what I've said. I'm not hiding from anyone. And I have nothing to fear. For I am an innocent man. I am a blameless man. He is without fault and without sin. He is morally and spiritually, beloved, perfect. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin. He committed no sin, nor deceit. Nor was deceit found in His mouth. Or as we read in 1 John three five, it says, In Him, that is Christ, there is no sin. Beloved, I've said it before, it's Always worth saying it again, he is the only sinless one who has ever lived. And yet he had to endure a trial at the hand of men who were sinners, bent on doing whatever it took to bring about this innocent man's death. And beloved, when you think about that, his innocence, who he is, only magnifies and elevates the vileness and the offensiveness... ...of this unjust trial. You want to get upset about injustice? Injustice? This is something to get upset about. This was injustice on a level that we'll never see again. Not being able to pin Jesus down, the high priest now breaks from his primary role as judge and juror and secure of justice... He takes on the role of prosecutor. Now he's going to try to get Jesus to say something that could be used against him. Beloved, this is an illegal trial, so throw out all the policies and procedures. The people that came before the trial, they, the accused stands there. The accused would have a defense. The accused would have prosecutors or witnesses against him. The high priest stood and listened and made sure that the court proceedings went accordingly and Correctly. He now steps into the role of prosecution. He comes out against Jesus. And we see that in Mark 14, 60 through 61. Remember, it's the middle of the night. The sun is going to be rising soon. The people will be out again. they got to take care of this now if they have any shot of getting this guy killed. So verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, that is Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? The witnesses had failed, and Jesus remained silent. Now, why should he speak when the testimony against him has already shown itself to be false based on its inconsistencies? Why should he speak? Why should he say anything? Why should he give any credibility to this illegal Trial by trying to give an answer to or for the false testimony that has been spoken against him. What do you want me to say? Are you serious? He remains silent. There's nothing to say to this. The high priest didn't see it, but Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled in his courtroom. Isaiah 53:7, speaking of the Messiah. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Peter also says in 1 Peter 2.23, When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly the father there's no justice here in this courtroom but the high priest would not give up his fight to see Jesus killed so now he tries a different angle you don't want to talk okay are you the Christ the son of the blessed beloved let me just tell you this he already knew that he made those claims it was apparent it was clear But he wants to get them to say it now, publicly in this courtroom. And son of the blessed, blessed is just another way of referring to God. It's a substitution, it's a way of substituting God's name. Because God's name was high and holy, so they didn't always want to just keep throwing God's name around. So son of the blessed, son of God, that's what that means. Are you the son of God? Huh? And Jesus breaks his silence. 1462, Mark 1462, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus not only confirmed his messianic identity, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the one they should be bowing to, he is the one that's foretold in the Old Testament prophets and by In prophecy, He is the Christ, but beloved, He is also divinity. He is God. He is the unique Son of God. And to make that abundantly clear so that they couldn't confuse that issue, He refers to Himself as the Son of Man who will be seated at the right hand of power and in the future will come with the clouds of heaven. These words are found in two Old Testament passages, at least. Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. And I just want to read those to you so you understand where he's drawing that stuff from. These were the religious elite. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the implications of what he just said. Daniel 7, verse 13 through 14. Here Daniel talks about a vision that he saw. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's that title that Jesus keeps taking to himself. And he came to the ancient of days. That's a reference to the eternal God, their God. And was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given by the ancient of days, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Then in Psalm 110, we read verse 1, David writing this psalm, says, the Lord, Yahweh, God of Israel, says to my Lord, my Master, my King, sit at my right hand. This is a an image of God the Father speaking to God His Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, something to prop up your feet on. Now in Mark, it says the right hand of power. The right hand of power. Again, and we see in the NIV, mighty one, the right hand of the mighty one. Literally, it's power. It was a Jewish way, again, of saying the right hand of God. They're using the power, just like the Son of the Blessed. It was a way of substituting another word for God. Power. Couldn't get a better better word. This is the right hand of God. To sit at the right hand of God is to sit in the place of highest honor and authority, beloved. That's what it means to sit at the right hand of God. Not as if he's actually sitting down next to God and God has a hand, but it's a A way of referring to sitting at the place of most power and honor and authority. Coming with the clouds, that language, we've heard that used before by Jesus in His reference to His second coming as the ruler and judge of the world. And we read that in Mark 13.26. Also referenced here in Daniel 7.13.14 when He would be given by the Ancient of Days a throne, a kingdom, rulership. Here's the bottom line of all this. Jesus was and is blameless. And He was and is the Son of the Blessed. And He will one day return to righteously judge the world, including those who were sitting as judges over Him that very hour. For they will see Him again. They will. At the final resurrection when they stand before Him at the great white throne Judgment of Revelation twenty verses eleven through fifteen. One writer says it this way: What Jesus said is a reminder to the members of the Sanhedrin that his own position and that of his judges would then be reversed. How did the high priest respond to that? Look back at the text, Mark fourteen sixty three. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? Beloved, he's, he's fired up. You didn't have any witnesses. But now he's glad. He doesn't, he's saying, we don't need any more witnesses. Forget the witness thing. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? Now, beloved, normally in a trial case, if someone says something like this, there would need to be investigation into what he said. They would have to think this through. But he moves right to a decision. You heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. We got this guy. That's what they think. We got him. Tearing one's clothes in this way was a great sign of, or was a sign of great shock and indignation. You see that in 2 Samuel 1:11, just a few places. 2 Kings 18:37. They would rip their clothes just to show, oh, this is terrible. This is awful. Well, what was so awful about what Jesus just said? What, What was what was worthy of this ripping of the clothes? This disgust? Well, Jesus had just claimed rights and powers belonging exclusively to God. That's what just happened. Just like in Mark 2.7. Do you remember way back in Mark where he forgave the paralytic of his sins? He said, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders there said, who can forgive sins but God alone? This man blasphemes. Same idea, Jesus took upon himself rights and powers and authority that only God should have. Well, yeah, He did. Because He's God in the flesh. The very Son of God. Caiaphas, one writer says, regard the words as blasphemy because Jesus claimed the position and power of deity. And then look back at the text, Mark 14.65. Some begin to spit on Him cover his face so the idea is they would maybe put a blindfold over him or put their hands over his eyes and and they would strike him. Beloved, this is the Sanhedrin doing this. Not a crazy mob, this is the religious leaders. And then they're they're telling him to prophesy, basically tell us come on, tell us who's hitting you. Tell us who's hitting you. And they turned him back over to the temple guards. It says, and the guards received him, and they decided to to do what they saw the Sanhedrin do. So they took him in, and they received him with blows. It says they spit on him in Mark 14, 65. I don't know if you've ever been spit on, but I know the front row has, but none never on purpose, not in this way, not in this way. This, this is a, a one of the greatest insults, especially in that culture. I, I would think any culture, but certainly in that culture, to spit into someone's face is to, to say you're nothing. You're nothing, <clears throat> beloved. It was the, the blameless, son of the blessed. Okay. that endured an unjust trial and all the sufferings that followed in order to give His life as a ransom for many, according to Mark 10.45. The sinless one, Jesus Christ, suffered unjustly at the hand of sinners. Do you get that? The sinless one. Suffered unjustly at the hand of sinners. Why? So that he might purchase salvation for sinners. It it is an amazing thing to contemplate, to think about, to meditate upon. What love is this that the Son of God should die for me? An undeserving sinner. Well, 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love. You want to know how we know what love is? By this we know love, that He, Christ, laid down His life for us. But just to recap, this trial was illegal, but it took place is all the, the filthiness and vileness of it and all the disgustingness of it it took place primarily because of human sin. Okay, we our problem beloved is we don't loathe sin enough. We might hate someone else's sin. We get all fired up about someone else's sin, but we will never radically change until we get fired up about sin and specifically our sin. He said, I wasn't there. I, I wasn't at this trial. Beloved, the same sin that was coursing through their veins courses through yours and mine. It's in our very nature. You think you would have done something different? I don't know. This is what we're capable of. Sin would crucify the Son of the Blessed. Sin would break with every rule and law what is good and moral and holy, would turn on it to put to death the very Son of God. That's sin. Sin is envy, sin is jealousy, sin is gossip, sin is hatred, sin is unforgiveness. We need to loathe our sin. We need to hate it. We need to see it. As dark and as black as it is, stop playing with it. Stop entertaining it. Stop warming up to it. Stop sleeping with it. Turn from it and see it for what it is. And if we will do that, beloved, we could have some radical change in our lives for the good. I'll tell you right now, in almost every case, almost every counseling situation, almost every problem, it is because the person has not loathed their sin. They don't. They don't hate it. They like it. But they don't see it rightly then. Second, we need to love our Lord. And that would be the other part of it. Love our Lord even more. Oh, I love our Lord. I love my Lord. Okay. You need to see who it was who gave himself up for you. Not just a guy, but an innocent man, the blameless one, the very son of the blessed, the holy one, the sinless one, the perfect one. He's the one that gave himself up willingly, who endured this ridiculous trial and the punching and the spitting and the whipping and the crucifixion to save you. And I don't don't know when you begin to think about that, this is what happens to me. My love for Him increases more and more and more. My love for Him consumes me so that I I want to live for Him. I want to stop sinning. I want to turn from it. You put these two things together, beloved. Loathe your sin and love your Lord even more. There will be radical change in your life. There will be radical change in this church. There will be radical change in your homes and your relationships. There will be radical change in your marriage. There will be radical change in your workplace. There will be radical change in this country the Lord will be glorified and our good will be accomplished. I hope that we'll do that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for our time. I thank You for Your Word. I thank You to just be with Your people this morning. Father, if there was anything I said that shouldn't have been said or wasn't right, I pray that people would just forget it. Would pass from their minds. Lord, if there was anything of value, anything that was worthy of being said that was accurate, Father, I pray that they won't be able to forget it. I pray that it would burn down into our hearts. That, Father, we would we would really just begin to see sin for what it is. How ugly it is, Father, that we would we would see our sin for, for what it is. Father, help us. We live in a world that loves sin and hates the Lord. That's what we're surrounded by. So, Father, help us to live differently in this world. Help us to be those who are marked by a hatred for sin. Not other people's sin, but for our own. That we would go after our sin with a vengeance, crucifying it killing it off, destroying it by the power of the Spirit that resides inside of us. And Father, would our capacity to love our Lord increase more? That we would be consumed by that love. That that love would move us to live for Him. Father, I pray all these things ultimately that that you would be lifted up, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored. Father, we need you so desperately and we thank you for your grace and we pray you would continue to extend it to us and pour it out into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.